going to discuss how designers can define their exit strategies and develop their succession plan. Welcome, Lloyd, and thank you for joining me. Leslie, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. First of all, uh, what is the purpose of a succession plan? Well, as, as I suppose with anything, it's, you know, a, a successful project, a program, a, a job and a career, you know, should have a beginning and an end and end. Um, I think uh, one of my favorite people, <clears throat> Stephen Covey, the author of uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and The Eighth Habit, you know, one of the um, one of the tools, uh, one of the habits is begin with the end in mind. You know, so what do you want out of your career? I think a lot of people just happen into something. And in even my own career, I didn't I wish I could say I designed it. Um, it 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 just ha happened through osmosis. But people work, work, work um, and don't necessarily think about how it ends. And, you know, and in the interior design industry, um, what are, what are the things that I will often counsel my clients on and, you know, and, and even when doing presentations as well is saying when you're negotiating a contract, when's the project over, you know, and, and you need to have a bit, and it's a very important part of negotiation, but it's a very important part of, of a project. And you need to put that in there. You know, this project is over when X happens and the same thing when it comes to a business, when's it over and what does that look like? Um, so hence the, the need to put some thought into it and yes, indeed, perhaps even having a formal succession plan. Sounds very, very wise to do so. Is having a succession plan an appropriate strategy for all small businesses? I would say yes. And I reference back to my last comment, even if it's informal, just to have thought about it, um, what do you see, you know, what do you see happening with your business? If it's a, if it's a small design practice and um, it's been a, you know, a one person shop for, you know, a person's entire career, maybe the appropriate ending is when I retire, I retire, I say goodbye to my clients and, you know, wish them well. But um, I could challenge and say that that is leaving something on the table, you know, because clients have value. And certainly there's relationships that get formed. And if, and if someone is very good at what they do and they have a good reputation and they have developed a vendor network, um, perhaps they have some inventory. And those are things we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, there could be, you know, easily an argument for saying, at least have something formally in writing, you know, and, and, and not to take it to the very end, but what happens when you die? You know, what happens if you die unexpectedly and you have a business that's open? You know, who's going to actually close the business? Who's going to administer your final projects? I don't, I don't know that people necessarily think about it because maybe they assume they'll see retirement and have the opportunity to to make um, make final decisions for themselves. But even I recently and I'm, I'm, a very, I'm in my 50s and I um, just recently really formalized my estate planning purposes and one of the things that I had to address was my business, because I have employees. And if something happens to me, you know, they're going to want to be paid, um, at least for the time being. And then I have clients for with, you know, with whom I have contractual obligations um, and from whom I've taken money. So they're going to want me, you know, they're going to want their projects finished as well. So all of that needs to be planned for, you know, um, if something should happen to me. And, um, and as I kind of tell people, I, I have two risky, 
two risky uh, uh, hobbies that I'm engaged in. I'm a private pilot and I also like to ski. So I said I thought it was probably very, very appropriate that I would take the time to, uh, you know, be prepared. But um, even without that kind of definitive ending in mind, you know, these are these are just questions that should be answered and and in addressed in some manner, whether it's in a will or if it's in a, you know, in a, in a business plan and it's something that you've just taken the time to discuss with somebody. So probably a little, slightly circuitous answer, but hopefully that, that, that addressed it. it. It does. Let's drill down a little bit and um, maybe you could talk to us about what kind of legal groundwork should be in place before a business owner considers succession. So Probably the simple part is how a business is structured um, legally can be very simple or, or, or uh, I don't want to say more complicated, but you know a lot of small business owners may just file a Schedule C on their personal tax returns and they have some business deductions and they show their income and that's all fine and well with the IRS. Nonetheless, and they may be doing business as they may not even have a, uh, you know, a, a, a separate business entity. If I, I personally recommend having a separate business entity, um, and you know, and and, every, and uh, someone's CPA or you know, a, you know, ta tax advisor can certainly tell them what's the best one to do. I use a subchapter S corporation. Other, a lot of my clients use LLCs, but they nonetheless have a separate business entity in place. We could have a conversation around the benefits of that from a tax consideration, from a liability consideration, um, all, all of which are very important. But from a succession perspective, with a separate business entity, now you have something that in theory is a sellable entity, that that entity can be purchased and it is, it's, it's distinguishable from, your, from one's personal assets. Um, and hence, so not doing it on your personal income tax in your Schedule C is a good way to keep things, you know, keep things bifurcated. Um, and uh, that's probably really the basis of it. I will, we could go deeper into the legal, legal portion of it, but I would say one of the things that if a person is really considering selling their business at some point, um, and, and there are various ways that that would happen. Um, they should be very clear about what's business and what's personal. And it's very fair. Most small business owners, well, even large business owners, run a fair number of personal things through their businesses because there may be legitimate reasons to do that or sometimes it's just easy to do. However, the person buying your business is not going to want to look at it as a personal piggy bank. They're going to want to be. They're not going to want to be paying for your dry cleaning, and they're probably not going to want to pay for your company car unless it really is a company car, and you know it's going to stick with the company. So there's just things like that that at some point in time will need to be separated out, and that's not necessarily a legal consideration, but it does come into play when you have your business entity, and now you're running various expenses through there. So it's just something to kind of keep in the back of one's mind and and be prepared to address before, you know, you start to to do something and put things in motion where you're going to actually execute a strategy. Uh, this leads absolute, it's the perfect segue into my next question, which is how do you value a business? 
Okay. Now, are you and I just really, really in sync? You're asking the perfect questions, or am I giving really good answers that we get get your segues here? I think we we do we do good work together, Leslie. Um, business valuation that that's a little a little more involved, but I'm, and I want to just keep it from a for, for this podcast. I'd like to just keep it at a high level. Um, what does one have to sell? I mean, what actually has value? Let's start with the tangible things. Um, real estate. Do you own Do you own the building? Perhaps you have a retail store and your offices are in a building and you own the real estate and maybe your business rents it back from you. Okay. That real estate has value. Um, do you plan on including that piece of real estate in your sale or were you planning to hold that and continue renting it back? Because if that was the case, then there becomes the rent issue. You know, are you renting your business at a favorable, you know, favorable rent? That could be meaningful or not. If you're leasing your business and you have a very favorable lease that is assumable by the new person, that could be valuable. If it's a really bad lease and, you know, nobody really wants it, then it's going to be seen as a liability. So there, there's that. Um, inventory. Uh, a lot of designers have extensive libraries probably don't have a ton of value to them, but let's say you have a furniture line and let's say you actually have a, a small retail store or a large retail store and you own your samples. Your inventory could have value. Um, cash in the bank, there's value to that, whatever the cash is, dollar for dollar, um, as well as your liabilities, that gets deducted against that. Um, Post-pandemic, I'm throwing in something else that I don't know would historically have been thrown in. And there's probably you know, a few business people out there who might conjecture, but I would suggest long-term employees or people who are loyal to the business and who want to stay with the business are also valuable because being a recruiter and understanding how tight the market still is for good talent and what how expensive it can be to recruit people train them, onboard them, what it costs if a business loses an employee, I could conjecture that knowing that you're going to have certain key employees stay with the firm and not have to replace them also has value to it. Um, and then accounts receivable, you know, are, I mean, that's, and that's probably a short-term thing if money's owed to the business, but we'll assume that that's probably going to be collected pretty frequently, pretty in, in short time, if for some reason it's very long term, you know, that's not what we're going to consider. And then the last part would be, which is probably the one that designers think has the most value is, is reputation, is, you know, is reputation, well, two things, reputation, you know, it, how are you perceived in the industry, but then also your existing clients, you know, what is the value of existing clients that you have? And that's a really good question because I could maintain that if, the designer just leaves and the current clients are hooked on that designer, they may leave too. They may just use that as an opportunity next time a project comes in to um, approach another firm and give someone else a chance. Um, could easily be the case. So that's kind of a moving target when it comes to the value. Um, and that's one of the things that maybe we could also speak a little bit about in terms of, you know, what does the succession plan actually look like? How is that transition made? Because truly, other than the real estate and the tangible assets, the kind of intangible, what I would consider, which would be the client base, getting them to stick around 
is really critical. I mean, and there's some interesting examples too um, with, um, you know, I think I think a fun example is uh, Alexa Hampton and, you know, having taken over her, her father's firm. You know, clearly there was a relationship. Clearly there is a family name that was shared. It's easier potentially to, to make a generational a generational shift like that. But I also know in brief conversations with Alexa, she did things a bit differently when she took over too. So it wasn't, she didn't just keep the status quo. Um, she did things, she, you know, it may have been her father, but now it's her company. So it was, a, the, the, things, things changed. So that, those are the broad brush strokes of how a business might be valued. And there might be one or two minor other things, but I'm going to say those are the, those are the important ones. Well, it, it sounds like, it might take a little bit of time to build this plan and, and this perspective. What is the typical timeline for devising and implementing a succession plan? Uh, that's a good question. You know, in a sense, I think, first of all, it has to start with the intention. Um, you know, some soul searching in the sense of what does a principal or principals want for the future of their firm, you know, do they, they may just say, listen, this firm has been me. This has been my life. When, you know, I'm done, it's done. Okay. You know, now we know. And maybe that's something that they share with their, with their staff too, because that could be, you know, that could be, sal you know, salient information for someone who's employed there. Um, but in terms of the actual planning and paperwork and whatnot, I don't know that it needs to take a particularly long time. I mean, you're, you're going to speak, you know, the basic people you're going to talk to, maybe you could be a CPA. You may have, you may chat with a business attorney. You may chat with a business broker um, to, to discuss some business evaluation. There are people who just spe specialize in the sale of businesses um, so that they could help, help you understand where their value is or may not be and what your business may potentially be worth. And, you know, and it will be a combination of the things that I just discussed. And they may, you know, they, they do that for a living. So they probably have some even deeper insights than I do on that. But I mean, I think, think with anything, like if I look back at my will, you know, it took a couple months uh, between back and forth and, you know, weeks between, you know, talking to the attorney and kind of having things in place. But I would also suggest that if, if someone does have the intention of wanting to have a business that they can sell or leave to someone else, that they start talking to the key people in the business that will be um, part of that to make sure that they're even interested in it. Because I think this also kind of leads into, well, who who would buy the business and who would take over the business? And, you know, we, you may, we may cover that in, in a different question, but it's probably a lot of it's about having conversations. I mean, the succession plan could be on one page. It doesn't need to be, you know, a, a, a ninety-page a ninety-page document. It's just, you know, a brief. It could be a. It could be just a brief outline of what the intention is, and then when the time comes, you know, depending upon what it is, if you're going to be elevating a key employee to become the new owner or to buy it from you, then you know, you either need to cultivate that person whom you already have. Or you need to find that person and bring them on the team and start cultivating them. So I so the short answer to your question now that I've given you the longer answer first would be the thought process and perhaps the outline could be very brief. 
the timeline for implementation and potential execution could be years. Depends on what you're trying to achieve. Uh, you mentioned writing a will. That's usually something that individuals are completely in control of. But um, when you're choosing a successor for your business, there is a, a back and forth, an interplay. What is mm -hmm. your advice on choosing a successor? And how do you evaluate candidates? And that is, well, I challenge you on the will thing. It's a, you know, I it wasn't probably part of the problem with me developing my will was I wasn't sure who I wanted to leave things to and it wasn't clear. And at that, it was more back and forth in my own mind than anyone else's. So yeah, while I'm in charge, it didn't make my decisions and my outcome any easier. And I also know that my will will probably be modified over the years. So that's a that's that's an evolve that is a living document, if you will. It needs to be dusted off and probably revisited every year. Like pretty much anybody with assets every year should be looking at re looking at the whole picture of their financial well-being and what's going to happen next. It doesn't have to be a long thing, but you take a look at it. And in terms of the succession planning, I would say the same thing. Every year you reevaluate it. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I was not involved in this transaction and it was, it was very public, but you know, uh, a very prominent interior designer in New York, David Kleinberg, um, made the decision of promoting a number of his key people to partner roles. And um, not that long after, and, and I don't recall the exact time frame, but it wasn't wasn't that significant. Three of them left to open their own firm. So even the best planning doesn't always um, yield what you think it was going to yield. So somebody that you think could be the right fit, their circumstances change, they get married, they have a child, they decide to open up their own business, they decide to leave the industry. That could happen, you know, several years down the line. Um, so I think the first thing is to have a clear picture of what the transition is going to look like and understand that if it is including having the business continue under someone else's leadership, be okay with the fact that that someone else may not be who you start with may not be the final person you end up, you know, finishing with that, you know, the dancer, the dancers may change before the, before the, the dance is over and, um, and just, you know, kind of be okay with that understanding. And having said that, um, you, you will definitely want somebody who has leadership qualities, who wants the responsibility of owning a business, and who is also, um, I would say, from an interior design, from a design, design professional perspective, I like to maintain that the owner of a business needs to be able to fulfill two really key uh, tasks. One is creative direction, and then two is business development. You need to be able to be a rainmaker and bring money in. Now, that could be two different people. So whomever this is going to be doing that for your firm, whether it's you know one or two people, they need to be really comfortable in those roles and they need to be okay with the responsibility of owning a firm. Um, I can um, mention also one of my clients in um, Northern California in Silicon Valley, a lovely, lovely lady 
who built a very successful design build firm for herself over three decades, uh, raised her family while doing that, um, bought commercial real estate that she has her building in, and, and just a joy to work with, one of my favorite, favorite people. We met because she thought she was doing something which was very uh, new to our industry for sure, especially for smaller companies. And she had, I think at the time, I want to say about 20 employees. Um, she wanted to create a structure of her business, um, an employee stock ownership program, an ESOP, so that the employees could own the company and buy into it. And the key two senior designers that she wanted to be the leaders in her place decided that they didn't want that responsibility and they left and opened up their own company. Um, and I don't know if they regretted it, but I thought as a business person that that was a very foolish thing to do because they had a thriving business that would have been theirs, you know, basically, you know, handed to them uh, with nominal consideration. So, but, you know, that's my opinion. And she kind of felt the same way, but it wasn't our decision to make. Each person gets to make their own decisions. So um, as an owner, you need to be, you know, don't assume what you're off. I, I also kind of like to joke because, you know, I'm a salesman. I always have to bring you know, dial for dollars to get the business. I do get people coming to me, but I do have to keep my business thriving. And to do that, I'm always doing outreach. And I often will say to people, you know, who apologize for not answering my call or returning a phone call or something like that. I'll say, listen, that's OK. You just weren't you weren't buying what I was selling at the time. And I think that's the same thing, you know, with businesses and succession. You may think, oh, my gosh, I've got this amazing business and people should be grateful to have it. Because I've had many an employer that we've done recruiting for going, well, they should be happy to work for us. You know, this is a great deal. And I'm like, eh, well, it's a good deal for you because it's your business. But they don't think of it the same way because it's not their business yet. So anyway, it's uh, choosing the right person is, 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 is a process. Well, if for whatever reason, it doesn't turn out the way the owner was hoping, does my final question, does an owner have any recourse if they have second thoughts about succession? I think it would depend on what, type of deal they structured and how far they were into it. If, if you signed a sale agreement, if you signed a sale agreement with somebody to buy your business, and we, we you know, we, we've been talking about succession planning, you're planning on having some, someone succeed you in the business. Uh, and I kind of brought up using a business broker, that plan may be, I'm going to sell my business. And it may be to somebody I don't know who it is, um, at, you know, at some point in time. You may, if you sign documents to sell your business and you've committed to something legally, um, you may not have recourse other than to be in breach of your agreement. Um, if you put things in motion with team members that are there and you decide all of a sudden they're not the right person or you want to leave it to a child of yours or um, you've just changed your mind and you realize it was your baby and it needs to go when you go. You may risk losing the people that you've got all jazzed up to step into these roles of leadership and ownership that maybe they were getting excited about. And they may go, you know what? I'm out of here. So sure, there's always recourse. One can always change their minds, uh, but there's all but there can be consequences to that. And you just need to know and decide whether or not the the consequences are are, are worth it. Um I think 
people change their minds and I think that's okay. Um, and I think that there's ways that you can do it that are um, more thoughtful. Perhaps you could use the word even more equitable um, if you change your mind. And maybe that's some of the, one of the things you build into a sale agreement or you build into your, when you do share with somebody maybe on your team saying, hey, these are my intentions. If I change my mind, I will do X. You know, if I'm not able to fulfill this, I'll give you a $20,000 bonus or, or something. I mean, you could you could soften the blow any number of ways um, when when you change your mind. I, I, and I I say and I don't I don't want people to I just don't I don't want people to feel mercurial about what not, you're not feeling mercurial, but people have been very mercurial lately. And I would leave you with this kind of thought that what I've observed a lot post pandemic is there's been a definite inward trajectory of people just seeming to be concerned just about what what's going on in their life and not with anyone else around them. And I've seen it on my client side. I see it on the candidate side. Um, little things even evidenced, you know, which is a lot of people ghosting, you know, that's become seems to be, you know, de rigueur these days. And, and what I find interesting about that, it's taken me a long time to get over it. And I'm not 100%. I mean, I'm mostly over it from like an emotional perspective. Because I, I would go, well, you called me, you came to me, I provided you information, and we were dialoguing, and then you just stopped responding. It, you know, it was hurtful a lot for quite a while. And I'm, I'm a sensitive soul. I wear my my heart on my heart, heart on heart on my sleeves, I guess, as they say it. So it bothered me a long time. Now I just realized it's what people do. I don't think it's okay. I don't like it, and I'm not as forgiving about it. But. Um, I also realize it's not a reflection on me. It's a reflection on them. So I think that's part of where we are in many respects today. And I would just say that realize that all of our actions influence other people and whether we we choose or want to acknowledge it, you know, we have to try to lead with as much grace as we can as we, you know, tiptoe, tiptoe through this life because it's, um, it's easy to make mistakes. It's easy to hurt people's feelings. And, you know, and I think a good, a good thing that, you know, kind of um, an analogy I would also reference, you know, dear Stephen Covey, um, you know, he would talk and he referenced this more about just dealing with the people in our lives, but he kind of uh, likened it to a juggling act. You know, you had these three balls that you were juggling in the air and, you know, one would be work and one would be family and one could be your personal, you know, your personal um you, your own time, just you, not necessarily the people around you. And, you know, you're juggling, juggling, doing the best you can, but sometimes you drop them or sometimes they hit in the air. And he goes, but unfortunately, these balls are made of, you know, of metal. And sometimes when they hit or when they clink, you know, they get dented and those dents aren't so easy to take out. And I think that's, and that always just struck me as a really good analogy for life. And, and I know I've made a lot of mistakes in business. I, people who don't want to talk to me anymore. Um, I can certainly have a laundry list of people and that I may have dated in the past that, you know, don't want to talk to me anymore. So um, I, it, and I, it, it, it has stuck with me. You know, I'd like to think that I do a whole lot more good than, you know, bad, but I, um, I just realized that, you know, we're dealing with people who have feelings. And I think if you can put that first, especially when you're doing important planning for your future and perhaps people that work with you and and for you um that sensitivity will really pay dividends in the long run well this has been a most more insightful than i ever thought 
uh, it could be a most insightful conversation about what many people consider a difficult subject. Thank you very well, thank much, you. Lloyd Princeton, for joining us today on KBB's From the Tap. Well, Leslie, it's a it's a pleasure to be back. And, you know, one thing that wasn't mentioned and I kind of forgotten about myself, but for for quite a while, I had a I was a contributing columnist in, in KBB. And uh, there were many, many, I think a month, I had a monthly, monthly contribution. And uh, so your, your publication has always been a, has been a special one to me. Well, that's awfully nice of you to say. Thank you. You're very welcome. Be sure to subscribe to KBB's YouTube channel and click the like button on our videos. You can also subscribe to KBB's From the Tap podcast on such apps as Apple, Spotify, Pandora, and Google Podcasts. And please feel free to leave a review. Oh,